0: Hey, everyone, welcome back to Policy Punchline. Here at the show, we interview scholars, policymakers, and business executives about some of the most urgent issues and frontier ideas in our world today. I'm Princeton senior Tiger Gao. My guest today is Alex Tabrik. He is the the Bartley J. Madden chair in economics at the Mercatus Center and a professor of economics at George Mason University. Along with Tyler Cowen, he is the co-author of the popular economics blog, Marginal Revolution, and co-founder Of Marginal Revolution University. He is the author of numerous academic papers in the fields of law and economics, criminology, regulatory policy, voting theory, and other areas in political economy. He is also co-author with Tyler of the textbook Modern Principles of Economics, which is very widely used. Uh, He gave a TED talk in 2009 and became very famous uh, in his articles have appeared in the new york times the washington post and many other publications it is not an exaggeration to say that uh, professor tabrick along with tyler cowan wield an enormous influence over the intellectual discourse today in america and especially amongst a lot of the silicon valley entrepreneurs i was talking to a lot of my friends and who work in startups in silicon valley and uh, i asked them who they follow on twitter they all say alex tabrick so this is uh uh, hopefully we'll we'll have a great conversation today. So Professor Tabrik, thank you so much for being here today.
1: Well, thanks. Uh, good to be here. Thanks for the uh, very kind introduction. I think there are <laughs> some exaggerations there, but okay.
0: <laughs> it is actually true. I mean, I, I don't know why, but but you and Tyler Cowen have, have such a, a an enormous influence over what Silicon Valley people are, are thinking these days, it seems that, I mean, especially when it comes to uh, issues of techno-optimism or, or stack, tech stagnation, which we should get into in a moment. But perhaps to, just to start us off with, maybe we can uh, acquaint our listeners with, with who you are. Who is Alex Tabrik? What kind of research does he do? W- would you consider yourself a conservative,
1: a free marketeer? Where do you stand on, on the spectrum? <laughs> um, so, you know, when I'm always ID'd, right, as a libertarian economist, um, I think of myself more as an economist who is also a libertarian. <laughs> uh, you know, nobody ever ideas somebody as a middle of the road economist, <laughs> but middle of the road is also an ideology. <laughs> um, anyway, so uh, I've been at George Mason for many years. Uh, I do a lot of work in uh, political economy, law and economics, uh, public choice. Um, so my work is often quite uh, applied. Uh, and I think that's one reason why uh, the blog, uh, Marginal Revolution, has done so well because we're always talking about how does economics apply to the world?
0: So you write about, I, I, I believe, just such a wide variety of topics, voting voting theory, better crowdfunding, healthcare prices, education prices, and you also sent me some other topics that we should talk about, like, like uh, bounty ha- hunters. And so, so it, it seems that COVID-19 was this crisis that when it hit a lot of your research and thinking, uh was able to you you were able to put to use to them so maybe it'd be nice to maybe start our our, us off with what you saw as some of the moments in early on in the pandemic that that you were like this is not going so well and those are the places where economics can really play a a big role in influencing policy decisions
1: right so um going back even quite a bit earlier uh tyler and i have been quite interested in uh, pandemics and sort of fearful of pandemics for a long time. In fact, in our textbook, um, we talk about a pandemic as a supply shock, you know, long before we actually had pandemics. And, uh, you know, we, we actually discussed pandemics, what are the right, you know, policies for free trade, and you know, it's all in the book. Um, so, and when the avian flu uh, pandemic um, happened, Uh, We thought that there was a pretty decent chance that that was going to be a really big deal. Um, And Tyler, in particular, was blogging on Avian Flu a lot. But this was something, you know, we've always thought that this could happen in our lifetimes. So when it finally did, uh, we were not surprised. Um, It was going to happen sooner or later. I was tipped off early, I think. Um, Two things. Uh, One you know, on Twitter, people like uh, Balaji uh, Srinivasan, uh, I think was ahead of the curve. And I took that very seriously. He was like wearing masks before anybody else was. I took that very seriously. And then when I saw what China was doing, uh, you know, China was building a hospital in, you know, five days, Uh, they shut down, you know, Wuhan. And I I couldn't understand why other people were not taking this so seriously, because if anything, The Chinese government is more concerned about the economy than they are about, you know, people, right? Um, So the fact that they were willing to shut down an entire city of 10 million people, that showed you how serious this was. And people in the United States were just brushing this off, like, oh, this could never happen here. This is some weird thing going on in in China. So when that started to happen uh, in, in January, I knew this was a big deal. Yeah, I still remember we, we had a um, Princeton professor, Jessica
0: Metcalf, who is an epidemiologist, on the show last February 14th. It was Valentine's Day. I, I remember it very distinctly. We had her on the studio and she was saying this is going to become a global pandemic. And uh, back then, New York Times were writing about China, but, but the U.S. barely had a, a few cases. And, and I think that was kind of the shocker moment when, when she said that. And then everything ensued. So, so did you feel like the expert at least? at the top level had an idea or or the like the epidemiologists or or public health officials that you interacted with uh, were were prescient or did they also not really understand the significance and gravity of the issue?
1: Very, very, very few people understood. Um, And, you know, we'd gotten into uh, complacency. Uh, You know, I think in general, there's a lot of complacency uh, in the United States, but I think We'd gotten complacent, you know, we'd made it through the avian flu crisis and it kind of fizzled out. And we just thought that this was something which wasn't, couldn't, couldn't possibly affect us. And I think that was true right from the very top at the CDC, you know, the CDC, their entire reason to etra is to fight a pandemic. And yet they had become a bureaucratized uh, institution. Uh, they were more like a, a university uh, putting out papers uh, than they were, you know, uh, a pandemic fighting institution, which is ready to go to battle. None of our institutions were ready to go to battle. That was really the, the thing uh, which, which struck me. And even much later, even after the crisis, even after thousands of people were dying, you know, I was talking with people in Congress uh, quite regularly, and there was no, uh, there was no energy there. You know, I would talk to people in Congress, I you got to do this, you got to do the blah, 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 blah. And, and they would say, well, we have to wait for the next bill, you know, after the next session, you know, we got to do that. There was just no energy there uh, whatsoever to fight this um, as, a, as a battle, which is the way I thought it should have been fought.
0: What were some of the initial policies that you think the U.S. should have adopted that you advocated for at the beginning of the pandemic, when you look back and how did your thinking Gradually evolve as the situation evolved.
1: Right. So, of course, we now know that. You, you know, the, the thing about pandemics, um, is it's an exponential process, right? And so, uh, you have to start fighting it when people think you're crazy, uh, because you know there's it, lots of you know examples, as you know, like the chessboard, right? You know, uh, you one grain of sand on the first, uh a square and then two grains of sand on the second square and, you know, four uh, on the third and, you know, very quickly, you have uh, more grains of sand or I guess rice is the the classic example, more rice than in the entire kingdom or in the entire world, right before you uh, get to the 64th square, it's just uh, a huge, huge number. And so what this means is that if you're not early, then you lose control of the process. And the CDC, they botched the initial test. And not only did they botch it, but then the FDA, then in in incredible uh, irony, uh, the FDA then said that private companies and labs cannot develop their own tests. So the the oddity is that normally private labs and uh, the states can develop tests, but because this was an emergency, you had to get permission right so we did exactly the wrong thing uh instead of saying this is an emergency you know let let's go on all different fronts and develop as many tests as quickly as possible you know we instituted these bureaucratic procedures and that just slowed things down so that meant that we could not stop this we did not get you know the first square or the second square or the third square and by the time the tests were available it was already spreading really rapidly um, in the United States. We just didn't know it. I, I think you tweeted something like
0: in any, uh, there could be many alternative alternative universes where we, we could have succeeded in some way, but the, the, in every alternative universe, you have to start with testing, basically. T- testing was was very crucial. I, and anyways, but in, in a very recent op-ed um, on New York Times, Ezra Klein actually posed the question, is Alex Tabert right? And he was saying that he and you, have, you know, very different on the opposite of the political or ideological spectrum. And but you have emerged as an outspoken advocate for very drastic measures uh, to fight the pandemic. And he, he wrote that Alex Tabret calls for vastly more spending to build vaccine manufacturing capacity for giving half doses of Moderna's vaccine and delaying second doses of Pfizer's for using the o- Oxford AstraZeneca vaccine for the FDA uh, to authorize rapid at-home tests and for accelerating research to human challenge trials. Um, So perhaps just to give our listeners an idea, what what were your stances on on vaccine, on spending, on government's investments at the beginning of the pandemic? And uh, what is this idea of um, half dosing or or, or first dosing, partial dosing?
1: Yeah. Yeah, it's a funny story actually, because I'd I'd written uh, about using some prizes and using incentives um, to accelerate vaccine production. And then I was asked, by uh, the Domestic Policy Council at the White House and by the Council of Economic Advisors to uh, get on a call uh, with them. And I said, sure, I'm happy to do that. So I get on the call and it turns out that it's me and Michael Creamer, <laughs> his Nobel Prize winner um, who won a Nobel Prize in part for his work on uh, using incentives to accelerate a vaccine. So it's like, it's me and the world's expert on this question. <laughs> um, anyway, so uh, during in this call, you know, I was really forthright. And I said, look, the economy is losing like $250 billion a month uh, because of this pandemic and social distancing and so forth. So almost anything we do to accelerate uh, vaccines is going to be worthwhile. Um, So we ought to be spending a huge amount on um, accelerating uh, vaccines. Uh, You know, as I put it, this is the world's easiest cost benefit calculation because billions are a lot less than trillions. And just accelerating a vaccine by a few months could easily be worth trillions. And I talked about human challenge trials. You know, We need to get the human challenge trials, um, which is instead of waiting, you know, with a regular clinical trial, which is what we ended up doing. You have 40,000 people, 20,000 of them get the vaccine, 20,000 of them don't. And then you just wait for the ones who didn't get the vaccine. You just wait and wait and wait until enough of them die or enough of them get sick that you can then statistically compare, right? Uh, With a human challenge trial, you take not 20,000 people, but like a hundred people and 50 of them uh, get the the vaccine, 50 of them uh, don't. And then you challenge the people Uh, actually you don't even need the people not to get the vaccine you just challenge people with the virus so you give people the vaccine and you just challenge them with the virus and see how many of them get sick um and that's a much quicker way of finding out whether the vaccine actually is working so I was talking about that anyway uh Michael Kramer is a little bit more reserved than I am but it turned out he we were in complete agreement we were in a complete agreement, which was satisfying to me, uh, you know, oh, thank goodness, the, you know, the Nobel prize winner uh, you know, <laughs> is, is agreeing. And yeah. so after the uh, after this talk, um, they asked us to write a report. <clears throat> and then Michael got on his, uh, you know, his Rolodex and called his friends and Susan Athey and Chris Snyder and all these you know, famous economists. And we wrote a report for the U.S. government, and we wrote one for the British government, and then we started producing, you know, writing and, and researching this, uh, um, developing a model. You know, how much should we spend? Right? You know, how many vaccines should we support? And we developed a big model uh, on this, gathering data, and it was, um, and anyway, that had, that then, is uh, occupied by time for you know the last year and a half. Uh, first doses first. That came because. With the initial clinical trials uh, of the Pfizer vaccine, the very first trial, you could see that the vaccine was working from the first dose. Even before people got the second dose, it looked like it was really efficacious. So that suggested to me immediately that if we focus on getting out first doses, you know, we could vaccinate a lot more people much more quickly. You know, the The trials had the first dose coming and then three weeks later, the second dose, but that three weeks later, you know, they chose that time, not for any sort of scientific reason, per se, but because that was the shortest amount of time because they wanted to get the clinical trials done and the drug approved, you know, which was the right thing to do as as quickly as possible. So you chose the shortest amount of time possible um, that you expected to see an effect. Um, But Given that the first dose was already effective, you know, it turned out to be about 80% effective. It made a lot more sense to protect twice as many people at 80% than half as many people at sort of 95%. So I started pushing first doses first. Um, the British then adopted that. Um, then later the Canadians did. And then more lately, uh, the, the whole Kramer team, we, we have a paper which is coming out tomorrow actually on uh, fractional dosing. Um, it looks as well like, a, a, again, what they did in the clinical trials is, is these, we want to make sure that the, that the thing we trial actually works, right? You know, we don't want to waste a lot of time on uh, running a whole bunch of different trials, some of which aren't going to work, okay? So let's just go for a large dose. And we're pretty sure that the large dose will work, we'll get the drug approved, and then we can start giving it out. But in the phase one and phase two trials, small trials, you can see that like a half dose or even a quarter dose appears to also generate a really robust immune system, immune system response. So a way of putting this is that if we could go to half doses or quarter doses, that's equivalent to doubling the number of, you know, Moderna and Pfizer factories overnight. So this is a trillion dollar bill, which is lying on the sidewalk and we're trying to say, let's pick it up. So in other words, even
0: if you decrease the dose from two dose to one dose or from one dose to half a dose or quarter a dose, the, the, the benefits that one would actually get is, is not being quartered. And if, if you could actually vaccinate as many people as possible with a reduced dosage, significantly more people, it would actually yield significantly, exponentially higher benefits, especially when you are almost close to herd immunity, uh, then the economic cost becomes even greater and greater. But so. In in that sense, would, did you disagree with Europe or, or certain countries, even the U.S. decision to halt certain vaccines when, you know, Johnson & Johnson or AstraZeneca, uh, certainly there was the hesitancy issue, you know, that, that kind of helps the conspiracy theorists narratives. Uh, but also, did you feel like even if there were blood clots, statistically speaking, you should just move them forward? Were are there, there are also scientists on the other side who say we should be cautious. And if there is a problem, we should well, actually-
1: there's a bunch of different issues uh, there. First of all, I think uh, given the phase one and phase two trials, okay. It already as early as, you know, August or so even before, perhaps a little bit before it would have made perfect sense for people at risk uh, to have taken an unapproved uh, vaccine. So I would have been in favor of, um, uh, Allowing people to take a vaccine even before we had all of the data for the very big e- efficacy trials, which took a long time, of course, to happen, because you got to wait, right, until enough people get sick to make this comparison. But for somebody who was in a nursing home, who was elderly, or person, or a person who was a physician, who was at high exposure, or a taxi driver, um, it would have made sense for them, rational, would have been perfectly rational, for them to take what was already a, a Relatively safe. We already have decent decent information, not total information, but decent information on safety, and it would have made sense for them to have said, "Yeah, I'm willing to try this vaccine." So I think we should have done that much uh, earlier. Um, then, of course, the we had the, the 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 emergency use authorization and the FDA. You know, took three weeks to even schedule a meeting, which the FDA was much faster than they usually are, <laughs> you know, you can take that as compliment or as criticism, uh, you know, as, as you like. Um, but that three weeks was in December, you know, when thousands, literally thousands of people were dying every single day. So in the three weeks that it took the FDA just to schedule on the meeting, you know, over 60,000 people died from COVID. So again, I think that was too slow. Um, and then you got into, so the, We should have done first doses first, right? Beginning in January, we should have followed the British. The British made the right decision. Uh, We should have done that in the United States. I think we could have saved lives. Um, Canada later did it. Um, Canada uh, did first doses first after the British. um, And that enabled Canada to actually overtake the United States in the number of people who were at least partially vaccinated. So Canada started out more slowly um, because they didn't have enough vaccine and then they finally figured out uh listen uh if we want to you know vaccinate more people we've got to go to first doses first which is what they did and that enabled them to catch up and in fact exceed the united states now did you feel like the united states at least did a somewhat decent job
0: uh, either with operation warp speed which injected all the funding to the vaccine operations we, we had uh, Robert Langer, who was the co-founder of Moderna, on the show, and he was saying, you know, huge thanks to the government for, for putting so much effort into this. So uh, one could say the U.S., relative to most other countries' bureaucracy still did so much better, especially given the speed for vaccination. Right. Uh, how, how would you rate the, the United States government's performance?
1: Right. So Operation Warp Speed was the one thing we did right. Um, that, of course, was what, you know, the Kramer team and my, myself were pushing. Right. In fact, we wanted to go bigger. So we were arguing for spending on a world scale of, a, you know, around 150 billion um, and 18 vaccine candidates. The U.S. did by far the best. They spent about 15, 20 billion on Operation Warp Speed. A few, the British spent a few billion, Europe a, a billion, but way less than we thought was justified. Right. And, you know, exposed. You know, we look correct. You know, we were correct. Uh, I think everybody would be much happier now had we spent a lot more, you know, an, another 10, 15 billion or even, you know, 50 billion. If we had spent that a year and a half ago, we'd be in much better shape. We'd be in even better shape today. So Operation Warp Speed was great. Um, they totally did the right thing. They reduced regulation. They spent money. Um, so I'm very uh, happy about Operation Warp Speed. Um, but that pretty much was the only good thing that the Trump administration did on the pandemic. So, so perhaps we can talk a little bit more about the statistics and economics behind
0: this, because I, I remember you talking on a different podcast, which was like uh, the EU was trying to negotiate the vaccine price from like eight dollars or eight euros per dose to six dollars. But the thing is, the expected value uh, of actually get vaccinating each person towards the, the, the height of the pandemic was like a thousand dollars per dose. So even if you invested dramatically more money uh, I mean, even, even you had, as you said, administered first dose much quicker earlier, had, had, did, when we did not know total information, even if we did that, that would have still get, given us a much higher, uh, you know, net positive expected utility. But, but why don't people think in that way? Uh, as an economist, you must have thought about this all the time. So I, I know Moderna said that, that, you know, they had their mRNA vaccine like two days after the, the, the virus was sequenced. So why don't we start administering it then? Why do we need the you know the, the whole FDA process, especially in a pandemic? Where, where should we not have had it?
1: Yeah, well, like I said, I certainly both as an economist and as a libertarian, I would have been, uh, I was in favor of you know allowing uh, people to take the vaccine much much earlier. Um, that would have been provided a lot more information. You know, you could have combined that with clinical trials, and um, I think it would have saved a lot of uh, you know a, a lot of lives you know people it's very bizarre um people just approach if you have never done this before right people just approach this with old mindsets so you know europe as as you said quite correctly was uh, dickering over the price of the vaccine as if this were you know like some expensive drug Uh, And in fact, the vaccines were incredibly cheap. I mean, they're ridiculously cheap. That's part of the problem actually is the vaccines are too cheap. Um, Not that they're too expensive. I mean, you know, the vaccines are anywhere between $4 and, you know, $80 at the very top, you know, typically more like $40 to, to $40, you know, for something which is gonna, you take once or maybe twice, you know, it's gonna save your life. This is like, as drugs go, as pharmaceuticals go, and as medical interventions go, this has a massively high benefit to uh, cost uh, ratio. So the time that Europe took dickering over the price, you know, killed people and uh, it was not even remotely economically justified, but they came into this with this idea that the pharmaceutical companies are monopolists and they're gonna rip us off. And, you know, the usual kind of uh, stuff. Uh, the Trump administration, Again, I think not for any sort of rational reasons, but just for sort of emotional reasons, the idea of like throwing money at a problem wasn't so foreign to them. <laughs> and the idea, let's just incentivize, and you know, let's just go big. You know, Trump is big on going big. You know, bigly, let's go bigly. Um, you know, uh, <laughs> and we did, yeah, and we did. So, and but that was the only that was the only good
0: thing that we did. So speaking of the concept of expected value, at the beginning of COVID, uh, a separate set of perhaps more uh, publicly popular uh, set of arguments surrounding this concept of expected value was about whether lockdowns were justified. A lot, Some economists, um, perhaps they're on the conservative side, perhaps not, they, have, they came out back then and they said, if you calculate the expected value of the lockdowns, it's like trillions of dollars, and that means roads don't get repaired, hospitals get shut down, you know, and, and so on, such that more people will die eventually in the future. And if you just look at the virus, uh, and people back then was just dis- disagreeing about how, how deadly the virus was, and they were saying it's not that deadly, that, that so not that many people will die and so on. Did you have a stance on that issue back then, especially as a libertarian, whether lockdowns yeah. were justified?
1: I mean I have mixed feelings and I didn't put a lot of um uh, so I purposely made a kind of decision that if I was going to have any influence on the trajectory of events then I wanted to kind of stay away from any social justice warrior kind of stuff like in in general I've been I've been staying off Twitter or I've been focusing my Twitter you know on substantive stuff and not trying to you know take a position on the ok sign or something like that and the same thing was true with lockdowns. I just figured I'm going to leave that one to somebody else. Okay, now because uh, it was just too politically controversial. And if you if you make something on lockdowns, and people are less likely if 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 they don't agree with you on lockdowns, then they're less likely to follow your your advice on vaccines. So I said I'm just going to focus on vaccines. Um, given that we're now out of the pandemic, what is my view? Um, you know, I think the lockdowns. The interesting thing about lockdowns is there really was two times um, when they could have really high benefits. Um, and unfortunately, both of these times are very difficult to do. One was at the very beginning, okay? Because if you can shut down the virus early and stop that exponential process, then you can have a huge, huge uh, impact. And that's what the South Koreans, uh, you know, did. Australia. Uh, right, it, yeah. it, 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 so. exactly. Um, The trouble, the difficulty with doing that, of course, is that people think you're crazy because you're shutting down the entire country when there's like you know a few a few cases. Yeah, (laughs) Yeah. exactly. Um, So it's politically very difficult um, to do. The second time lockdowns, I think, would have been useful, was in the real run-up in uh, Christmas, uh, Thanksgiving, and Christmas, and that's when you know three thousand people a day were dying, and that was our second wave and it was very very uh deadly um but people by then were tired you know and they wanted to go home they wanted to have thanksgiving they wanted to have christmas yeah um so again it would have been politically very difficult to do it at that time but that is the time when it could have saved a lot of lives so so in other words you would look at
0: lockdowns also in a cost-benefit way uh, in, in terms of, I mean, in hindsight, but at, at the moment, it seemed that making the decision was very difficult. I mean, it, it just seemed that there was the political sense, consensus that just ushered in globally that said we need to lock down. But there were people like the Great Barrington Project and so on that were just saying that this was uh, uh, not feasible. So I, I guess back then, if you were in the position back back in March, well, how how would you have reasons through these kind of cost benefit analyses?
1: Yeah, I mean, I think in March I would have done it. Um, and, but the, the, the lockdown can work if it's early and you know uh, sharp and, and quick and, and you, and you, you, you know, knock the virus out, you stop the transmission, you, know, you, you get testing, right? So the idea of the lockdown is just to give you a little bit of a break so that you can get testing and identify the hotspots and things like that. And of course, we never followed up with testing. So we never got ahead of the virus. And because of that, then the lockdown just fades away in terms of uh, importance. Um, it just doesn't do. You know, if you don't if you don't catch it early, then it, you know you can't really prevent this thing from from uh, uh, spreading. It's very very uh, difficult. So it, these long lockdowns, I think, don't work very well. It's interesting, by the way, that people have the, entirely the wrong idea on the sort of the the history of these things because historically uh, up until very very recently the epidemiologists have been against lockdowns the epidemiologists have been the ones who said lockdowns don't work right and uh it's really only in the past 10 years or so um uh with Richard Hatchett and a few others you know writing about this that there's been some trend among the epidemiologists to think that it might work But the Great Barrington people, you know, they got, uh, you know, I was not in favor of Great Barrington, but they were reflecting the consensus, actually, of the epidemiological community, you know, uh, certainly up until very recently, and maybe even, you uh, you know, up until, you know, just slightly before the crisis, right? So they weren't crazy. You know, they weren't crazy. That's what a lot of people thought that was the consensus view. Right. And that has only changed very recently. Um, Ezra Klein also wrote in
0: his article that your current agenda is to finish vaccinating Americans and do everything in our power to accelerate vaccination around the rest of the world. And I I think one statistic was saying that more than 75 percent of of all vaccines have been administered in just 10 countries, like mostly the the America, Western Europe, the, the more developed countries uh and, and it's India a little bit right
1: misleading now. because I, I think china has you know administered Done very well billions not billions, yeah well hundreds of millions excuse me hundreds of millions yes. of, of, of doses even though as a proportion of their population they're still not uh caught up to the united states um uh, but uh as a proportion of the world china has vaccinated a lot of people
0: so w- what would be your next step plans w- would you yeah. mind telling us a little bit more about this yeah. sure
1: so um, so yeah, I, I, this, the, we wrote a paper in science, the, the, the Kramer team, um, you know, saying that it's not too late to do more, okay? And you know the, it's still a case of trillions versus billions. Uh, the faster you can do things, the better. right? A vaccine which is available today is worth a lot more than one which is available six months from now. Um, but still the uh, cost benefit calculation is that the benefits far exceed the cost. So we should still be investing more in producing more vaccines. Um, and uh, I'm of course all in favor of now that the United States has been vaccinated in, in creating a plan to vaccinate the entire world. Um, fractional doses, I think is gonna be a you know key part of that. Um, because as I said, if we could do a half dose and maybe even you might say, well, let's do uh, a full first, first dose and do uh, a, a half dose for the second dose, right? You know, a lot of people find, not everyone by any means, but a lot of people find that the second dose uh, is a real doozy, right? Second dose looks too big. Um, so even if you did like a half dose for the second dose, that still gives you like a 25% increase in the Moderna and Pfizer vaccines, right? Uh, which is a big deal. Like how else could we, you know, name anything else where tomorrow we can increase the supply by 25%. That's huge. Um, maybe we could do, you know, half doses for people under the age of 50, let's say, right? So I, I think the there is quite a bit of good information from the phase one and phase two trials that the correlates of immunity that you see in the uh, immune system that you measure for half doses are very, very good. They look almost as good as for uh, full doses. So I I think there's a real opportunity here um, to vaccinate much more quickly if we look at fractional dosing. Uh, I guess just to look back at
0: at the entire pandemic response, you initially said that CDC didn't do too, too good of a job uh, Dr. Fauci has repeatedly been put on the spotlight again again and recently there's a whole Fauci email thing going on that we don't have to go to the politics of it but uh, w- when you actually look at the the responses were the scientific arguments made by someone like Fauci uh, or let's just say Fauci himself th- did you feel like he did an adequate job I mean initially I mean people kept playing that 10 second footage of him going on 60 minutes saying masks don't work even though I think the, the arguments were a little bit more nuanced than it but even if you look into the nuanced arguments, did you feel like he was wrong, or he is wrong? Or
1: I don't think he's been a great communicator, to be frank. Um, you know, I think in communication, you really, A, you need to tell the truth. Um, and it's unclear whether, it's, it's still unclear whether Fauci thought that, that the, the initial story which he told was actually that he knew masks worked but he wanted to reserve them for, you know, the doctors. And then later it turns out he thought Matt, he, he really thought math didn't work. So he was just wrong. You know, I don't know what the truth is, is there, but I think you always ought to tell the truth and you ought to give people, um, a, you ought to treat them uh, less paternalistically um, and give them, if you're uncertain, then give them some, you know, range of uncertainty. You know, people say, Oh, it's too complicated. I don't care give them the truth, and if there is uncertainty, tell them the truth. And I don't think Fauci was really great on those issues. Now look, he may have done many, many other wonderful things behind the scenes, okay? Like just managing Trump, I I, I could not have, you know, I I mean, he must've wanted to quit every single day. So, you know, uh, on those grounds, um, I'm sort of glad he was there or somebody was there. You know, but maybe his communication with the public was not the best.
0: Yeah. Um, You you mentioned that you're a libertarian. I guess the central question is, can you be a libertarian during COVID? Because even as a libertarian, uh, you advocated for a lot lot of government intervention in this case, but a lot of people would say libertarianism does not prevent one. Uh, from exercising government intervention in extraordinary times. Like we had uh, Princeton professor Keith Whittington, who was a very famous libertarian, uh, talk about this last summer. So can you be a libertarian during during COVID? What are your thoughts
1: on this? Well, I think there's a lot of reason to think that uh, uh, people have become more libertarian <laughs> because of COVID. Um, because certainly, uh, look, the government has failed on so many grounds. You know, uh, I mean, 600,000 people dead that's a huge, huge failure. Uh, the, the government failed on testing. You know, the, the FDA uh, delayed, uh, uh, you know, rapid antigen tests. Uh, the FDA delayed vaccines. Um, so I think a lot of people have, have realized, you know, you can't count on the government in an emergency. Um, they're just not going to be there for you. And they, they may make many, many, many uh, mistakes. So, uh, so I think there's lots of reasons to become more libertarian. Uh, one of the interesting things to me, you know for many years I've been a critic of the FDA. I've said you know the uh, people who die because of FDA delay in approving new drugs and devices, they end up being buried in an invisible graveyard. Well, one thing about COVID is for a lot of people for the very first time they're able to see the invisible graveyard. They're able to see the cost of FDA uh, delay. Now, for people who have AIDS and cancer and other deadly diseases, uh, this is not new. <laughs> this is not new with COVID. Um, so I, I think uh, what I'm hoping is that one silver lining is that people will be more um, respectful or more, be, more uh, cognizant of the invisible uh, graveyard. Now, having said all of that, yes, of course, it's also true that the pandemic illustrates government can be very useful, right? um and operation warp speed is an example of that i think operation warp speed uh is probably the highest uh, benefit to cost ratio uh, of government spending you know maybe since like the manhattan project and you know world war ii um so i think it's been very very uh, useful to accelerate uh vaccines and i'm i'm you know i'm pleased i had some you know sort of maybe small role uh in that the invisible graveyard you mentioned i
0: guess in economics terms that would be the unobserved counterfactual because we when you think about the treatment effect of a certain policy you always want to say had this not been implemented what would have happened and it's very hard to know what would have happened and that's why you say uh, if a drug gets delayed for three months the amount of people that you could have saved i mean it's a huge number or or, or so on so uh we, we can get into that later but i guess the takeaway from what you were saying about libertarianism, could we think of it as saying when it comes to investments, when it comes to supporting innovations, the government should in these moments play a strong role, but when it comes to communications, for people to freely debate what to do, and that's sort of better handled through a more decentralized mechanism and not just a paternalistic top-down approach because government could be making mistakes.
1: Yeah, I mean, on on the first point, I I would say that ideally what you want is for government to channel self-interest towards the social good, right? So the invisible hand, that's exactly what the invisible hand does, right? The invisible hand is the ways in which the market channels self-interest towards the social good. That's what I mean by the invisible hand. Now, the invisible hand works uh, under a lot of circumstances, but not all, not all. So when the invisible hand is not enough, then you want the visible hand. But the key is to make the visible hand work with the market, not against the market. And that's the sense in which Operation Warp Speed, I think, was a good idea because it worked with the market. It lifted, got rid of regulations, it sped sped things up. It gave the uh, more support. Uh, You know, where the social returns were really high, much higher than the private returns, it added to those returns. Right, so the problem is that the vaccine manufacturers were not making enough money. Right, the problem is that the vaccine manufacturers only capture a small share of the total benefits of producing vaccines. So you want the government, the visible hand, to amplify the incentives there, not to work against the incentives, which is often what government is trying to do, but to amplify the incentives, and that's where I think uh, the visible hand could be most useful. So just a few questions ago, you,
0: you were uh, talking about you and Michael Kremer uh, briefing the, the White House team, and you were saying that you guys overall agreed with each other, but there were some su- su- differences that, that you may have in, in the thinking. So may- maybe that, that this is a good way to highlight uh, some of the, the unique ways you approach problems. What were the differences? Did you feel like your solutions often involved more conservative free market principles or something that is more uh, technologically uh, involved? What were the
1: differences? No, well, so with Michael Kramer, the differences were just on style, <laughs> not on substance. I mean, he has a, let's, let's face it, he has a, uh, more of a reputation to protect. Uh, I'm more willing to go out on the ledge. So uh, if anything, so I, I would say my role on, you know, the accelerating, we, we called it the accelerating health technologies team. And uh, really, I mean, it's been an incredible privilege of my life to uh, work. With uh, a number of these top top economists like Susan Athey and Michael Kremer and a bunch of these young guys, you know Brandon Tan and uh, uh, Vital Vicek uh, is a uh, a statistician we worked with, and uh, Camila Castillo, young economist, brilliant, brilliant people. Right, these are people on the top top of their game, and uh, my role, if if there was a you know a specialization, was to be the tip of the sphere in terms of the public in like, how do we message things and what direction should we be going, right? So um, I was kind of, uh, uh, you know, pushing on all of these uh, uh, grounds and sort of was willing to take a public uh, position and um, uh, uh, push. It was good for me to have the models in the background, right, Uh, to know that I was standing on some relatively secure foundations. And because of that, i felt more confident in uh, pushing first doses first and pushing fractional dosing you know in and pushing going quickly and you know getting approval sooner and th- things of that that nature
0: so you mentioned something like vaccine lottery I, I don't know if this was something that you had in mind early on but i, I guess when um, people hear these terms you know like using a lottery system to incentivize people it, 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 they associate that with a with a type of thinking that that Silicon Valley entrepreneurs or or a certain type of thinkers often think about that you don't hear from government bureaucracies from traditional mainstream academic economists even. So, w- would you say that the, the, there is a distinct a difference between uh, some some of the more uh, new ways of thinking and, and old ways of thinking?
1: Yeah. So, uh, I mean, you'd mentioned that sort of Tyler and I have sort of had some influence among Silicon Valley types, and I think one thing. Uh, with respect to this crisis, is that people in Silicon Valley, they are used to acting fast, right? They understand something going viral, right, you know? Um, And, you know, so my colleague, uh, Tyra Cowan, you know, he raised like $65 million for a fast grants uh, program. He and Patrick Collison, who is the CEO of Stripe, uh, together they raised $65 million and continuing uh, from people like Elon Musk and others and um, to support FAST grants. Now here, FAST grants were uh, grants given out to scientists uh, to support funding on uh, COVID. Now, here's the amazing thing. FAST grants raised the money and dispersed the money before the NIH gave out a single grant, okay? I and mean, that's incredible, right? And there were top scientists, like Nobel Prize winning scientists who could not get money from the NIH but got money from you know, Tyler Cowan and Patrick Collison from the FAST grants, right? And some of that money, without that early quick funding, that research might never have been done. That research might never have been done, right? So, I mean, that kind of, to me is astounding at given the state of the emergency that we were in, the NIH was still requiring you know multi-page, you know, peer reviewed, you know, proposals and documents and going through all the usual procedures, you know, they just prove themselves incapable of responding in a crisis. Uh,
0: Perhaps this is a great segue to to talk about your connection with with the Silicon Valley. Uh, There was this profile that did on you that that titled uh, Camp Philosopher, Alex Tapper, Bridge the Wonks and Burning Man. It was saying how (laughs) these days libertarianism itself isn't as fringe as it once was. Indeed, even though Rand Paul's poll numbers are sinking, the, the moment he heralded it in modern American politics hasn't uh, had its uh, a death kneel run. Uh, the ideas championed by the anti-governmentalists are increasingly standard everywhere from medical marijuana to gay marriage debates to Silicon Valley's radical deregulationist philosophy. Tabrak's role was to bridge the world of the wonks and the burning man swords alike, uh, and, and and so on. and and. Uh, it, it really, I, I do get the tangible feeling that a lot of people in Silicon Valley follow you and, and look up to you as, as a voice that could bridge uh, the policy thinking in, in DC area like, but but also the, the Californian way of thinking. I guess, how, how did you and Tyler Cowen became so influential in this process, maybe through a marginal revolution, maybe through your other activities, but... Uh, why, why did you feel like uh, your economic ideas and, and theories appeal so much to, to the Silicon Valley types?
1: Um, so uh, Marginal Revolution has been, you know, posting something every single day since like 2003. So it helps just to keep going. Uh, one, you know, that may be part of it. Um, uh, perhaps we should also, I, I forgot to ask
0: yeah. you about the genesis of Marginal Revolution. Maybe we can even st- start there. Yeah.
1: Uh, The genesis was I uh, told Tyler we should write a textbook. And he said, you're right, but first we should start a blog. And this was at the very beginning of the blog era. And of course, Tyler was correct. um, Because writing on the blog, you've got to get to the point quickly, right? Uh, You have to give your, you know, we call the modern revolution dim sum for the mind, right? Little little bites. And um, that helped when we later came to write our uh, textbook. How we came to be influential in Silicon Valley, I, I guess there's a whole bunch of different reasons. Perhaps um, one is is that Silicon Valley certainly combines this idea of uh, socially liberal, right, and you know people used to say are fiscally conservative or whatever, right? So that kind of libertarian, you know, sort of uh, uh, in between. Um, and certainly, you know, Tyler and I have long been in favor of you know gay marriage and you know medical marijuana uh, deregulation and things like that. At the same time, where we also want you know low taxes and deregulation and deregulation of housing markets, you know, uh, less regulation, you know, more innovation, you know, things like that. So that fits the Silicon Valley mindset, and I think also um, the Silicon Valley the has been very responsive to effective altruism and to um, rational thinking, right? Uh, So cost benefit analysis, uh, things like that. I think that's turned out to be very useful in Silicon Valley. Uh, You know, the uh, Amazon and Google hire a lot of economists now, right? So that kind of cost benefit uh, thinking, I think um, and rationality in general including effective altruism has kind of been our bit of our sweet spot and has connected us with Silicon Valley. And uh,
0: marginal revolution just gradually gained traction over the years. You had more and more followers. And and as you said, Silicon Valley people found this sweet spot. And it's very interesting because it seems that, I mean, you and Tyler are both uh, based in George Mason University and George Mason University is the economics department. it, It isn't a traditionally, you know, ranked top 10 school like Harvard or MIT or so on. But it it seems to have such a big influence over intellectual discourse, people in policy, in in entrepreneurs, or or even in the economics community, they really look up to you and whatever work is coming out of the department. So uh, why is that, Uh, could could you tell us a
1: little bit more about
0: that that part as well?
1: Yeah, so it's very funny that so many economics departments are just very similar. Right, so it, it, economists ought to understand the value of product differentiation. And yet every second ranked economics department tries to be Harvard. You know, they tried to have, we're gonna have one macro guy, we're gonna have one micro guy and one econometrician person. And, you know, we're just gonna try and do whatever Harvard does. And George Mason has uh, uh, dared to be different. Um, and part of that uh, has been uh, that we have a much broader public face in a way which nobody has had, you know, since Chicago, since the decline of Chicago, right? So, you know, you think about Chicago in the Milton Friedman years when Friedman was uh writing for Newsweek and you know, had one of the he was blogging basically. Friedman was blogging his column, was you could think yeah. of as yeah. early yeah. blogging. <laughs> and you know, he had a television show, right? Friedman yeah. had free to choose, right? And, you know, so Nobel Prize winner, speaking to the public on a regular basis with a television show, you know, this is exactly what George Mason has tried to do and what Tyler and I have tried to do with our, you know, Marginal Revolution University, you know, the textbook, you know, the blogging. Um, We wanna make economics uh, valid and useful for thinking about the world and and, uh, improving the world. And surprisingly, there isn't much scope for that. Like people will come out with a paper, you know, which is uh, very relevant, has a lot of relevant, you know, useful information, but departments are not organized along, along those grounds. And I'm very fortunate that George Mason, the, our department chair, and, and you know, the, the whole uh, environment has regarded outreach as for part of teaching, right? Uh, this is something which uh, counts, uh, which is not regarded, you know, snootily. You know, at the very beginning when we started marginal revolution. You know, a lot of people looked down their nose. You know, <laughs> oh, you know, you're just writing for the public instead of, you know, writing, you know, you know, in the AER or the JPE or something like that.
0: You have to publish in top journals. Yeah, exactly. That's the yeah. Well, the
1: funny thing is now these people you know they send us our their papers and they say hey maybe you would want to blog <laughs> about my paper
0: <laughs> so did, did it ever i mean uh people must have made offers to you and tyler Cowell and say oh come join Harvard faculty come come join our wonderful <laughs> department where you can collaborate with more more famous economists who can get you on top journals and so on and, and it seems to be a very cozy environment at the top schools did, did that ever appeal to you in, in, in any way? Um,
1: so, um, uh, Harvard has not been beating down my door. Uh, maybe, <laughs> maybe that'll still happen. Um, but look, I'll, I will say this: um, i enor- I feel enormously fortunate. Uh, you know, the office next door to mine is Robin Hanson. Across the hall is uh, Brian Kaplan. You know, down the down the hall is Tyler Cowan. So, uh, you know, it's amazing when I go to conferences and uh, even though Tyler is like down the street, down the hall from me, uh, I'd still go hear a Tyler Cowen talk because uh, the guy is something new every single day. And even though I see Tyler, you know, almost every day, um, even if I'm at a conference, he'll be more interesting than somebody else. So I'm very, very fortunate to have great, great colleagues at uh, George Mason in a very supportive environment. From, uh, as an academic, do you feel like economics academia is moving
0: towards a more open uh, direction, like what George Mason is doing, or perhaps more closed? Because I mean, I, I am an econo- I'm in the Princeton's economics department as an undergraduate, and I was thinking about applying for PhD programs. And my, my professor was telling me, oh, Tiger, yeah, before you do that, you should do two years of what they call as pre-doc, pre-doctoral fellowship. You go work for a very famous professor in MIT or Harvard for two years. They write you a very great recommendation letter. And then you also make some connections. You get more familiarized with the research. Uh, so it's two years of pre-doc, six years of PhD, two years of postdoc, wherever. Uh, so you can really hit the ground running as a system professor when you're 35 or something uh, but but it seems that people are i mean also these people are very very good when they came out of those pre-doc programs after they worked their, their statistics their math uh so, so do you think that the economics profession has on one hand become more specialized and and better because the competition is fiercer but on the other end less open to uh, other outsiders were quirky people who don't have that kind of pedigree to, to enter um.
1: yeah um, I mean I think you're right now that the the career profile which you just indicated I think is becoming a dominant profile for the people at the very at the very top um, and yeah some of these people, some of whom I've been working with on this accelerating, you know, health technologies team. Some of our, you know, graduate assistants and undergraduates—they are absolutely brilliant, you know, brilliant people. Right? Um, it's kind of amazing to think, and I think this is a reflection of inequality um, uh, in society as, as as well as in the economics departments. Right? The the the, the it's become more of a winner-take-all market. Right. And um, the uh, returns to being at the very top have gotten really, really high, um, uh, even higher you know, than the increase in the average uh, return, especially when you think about a lot of what the top guys are doing. Like, you know, Rad Shetty is the classic example, but Atimoglu is another example, is they're not writing papers by themselves anymore. They're running research teams. Right. It's a and huge lab. It's a huge it's lab exactly yeah exactly and they are you know pumping out papers like a you know a production process right and so the skills which you need uh are quite different uh you've got to manage yeah manage these entire entire teams now having said that you know is there is there still room like i like i like i say you know i've managed to crawl my way to the middle right (laughs) um So there, you know, I I did not have that pedigree, did not have that um, uh, path, I've done okay. And um, I think there is still, you can have a great career and not be um, necessarily, you know, hitting that, you know, AER, JPE, you know, every couple of years. Um, It's still, it's a great profession and being a professor is a great job. I mean, now you you have to enjoy it. So if you're gonna do that, you know the two years of the research, you know undergraduate thing, and then you know your your PhD. You better enjoy the process along the way, right? Uh, you better get some returns from it along the way because otherwise it's just going to be too hard. You know it's just going to be you know, too much of a grind. Um, but being a professor is a fantastic job. Like I have no boss, right? It's an incredible. Uh, I get to choose my own time, like when I'm in the office, when I'm not in the office. I mean, it's astounding how much freedom we have as professors. I mean you know uh, you you may have to cut this part because <laughs> we don't want the regular we don't, we don't want the regular public to know all <laughs> right but like what other yeah. job okay yeah. this is shh, shh, this is the secret what other job do they tell you oh every 7 years or so we'll pay you to take a break we'll call it a sabbatical and go somewhere and you know learn something else or take a break and you know and we're going to pay you to do that right to take a break from your job every seven years just to refresh your patterns. It's astounding. It's astounding. Uh, so if you can get there, it's a very, very good job to have.
0: So Professor Taberik, uh, I know we're, we're on this uh, topic of economics for, for a while, but w- one last question from me. So uh, let, let's say there's some student like me uh, at my age uh, who listen to this interview. They read your blog. They, they read Tyler Cowen. They say th- these people are so cool. Uh, they don't care about the traditional boundaries and constraints of, of uh, uh, the tyranny of the big journals or so on. They, they want to just make impactful, good research. Uh, but, but it seems that for these kids to, to be able to get to your position, it seems very hard, because they can uh, go to a even a top PhD program. Maybe they end up at a state school as an assistant professor. Because I mean, nowadays, there's no guarantee that you can ever get into MIT, even though you could be a top student. So, so they start as a professor there do you still think they can still build up as the kind of influence over intellectual discourse for policy like you have because it does seem that academia or or economics is also a winner-take-all kind of sphere where the the gmu george mason people like you and tyler cowan have a great influence over intellectual discourse but i don't know any other second year school professors who who do have this kind of uh influence and, and and pedigree so it, it, it seems that there's only you and Tyler Cowan, or you have all the top journal editors. Like, yeah. <laughs> is, is that true? Or how should we break free from that?
1: Well, look, you can still have a great career at a state school and uh, do lots of fun things, and you know, publish you know important research. It's a different model than you know. You don't have to be you know Tyler Cowen or Alex Tabarck in order to have fun uh, in the profession. And you know, one thing which the, the profession rewards specialization uh, more than it rewards, you know, this broad perspective that sort of Tyler and I might might have. Um, but even when you specialize, you will find that one day, you know, I don't know when it, it might not be this year, it might not be next year, it might not be for 10 years, but one day you will find yourself to be the world's expert on the question which the world wants answered right now. <laughs> okay, right. And um, so that could be, you know, that, 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 that's a big deal. That, 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 that could be a huge amount of fun and uh, you, you have to wait for your time. But, you know, almost anything which economists are doing nowadays uh, is empirically relevant and uh, people wanna know. And look, there's a whole bunch of other careers as well. Um, you know, th- like I said, with Amazon, with Google, you know, uh, in public policy, if you wanna do, be a generalist, you know, there's lots of think tanks uh, working for the World Bank. Uh, it's a very uh, broad kind of degree, especially if you have some you know data analytics. Um, that can be applied in a lot of different a, a lot of different ways. Uh, you know, I do one of the other things I do is uh, consulting for uh, crypto companies. okay? Wow, We, <laughs> should, we should get it in
0: there very soon,
1: yes, please. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> right. <laughs> um, and you know, the interesting thing is, I, I, again, Economists have something relevant to say there, and our advice is uh, in demand. So, um, you know, to you or you know, to other students, I'm still pretty uh, pumped up on the uh, profession. Uh, Yeah, it's the returns are very asymmetric. There's a lot of inequality, Um, but even if you're not at the top, you can. It's a great. You know, uh, being a professor is a is a great job. And being an economist uh, is a kind of a great way of seeing the world, I think.
0: I was going to ask you about the great stagnation, but perhaps we should talk about crypto first. Is <laughs> how are things going on on that front? I mean, everybody's talking about like Bitcoin these days in media, it's crazy. So I I, I don't know, what what do you think about the crypto space, blockchain technology, Bitcoin? <laughs> right. Yeah,
1: yeah, well, I'm an enthusiast, but not, not quite a super enthusiast, perhaps. I mean, look, I think... Um, Bitcoin has proven itself as a digital gold, right? As a asset, um, like uh, gold. Um, it's not proven itself kind of as a currency uh, or as a medium of exchange. However, there are now quite a few stable coins, um, which really are looking very, very promising. Um, you know, the, there, there's been some busts to be sure, but there are now stable coins which have, uh which have held solid throughout the you know the massive swings in the price of underlying assets bitcoin ethereum and so forth and these stable coins really look nice and solid nice and solid uh much better record on the stable coins we don't we've only got a few years uh worth but there's a better record on stable coins than there are on you know most currencies being uh immune to big crises there's very very few currencies which uh, have been as stable as stable coins, have they faced you know, similar uh, ups and downs in the underlying assets they're trying to tie to. Um, so anyway, stable coins, I think, are. Uh, uh, it's obvious that people are going to use digital money, right? And uh, you can do that a lot cheaper with uh, crypto than you can using the current system. Like I just sent a, um, a wire to uh, India. I was buying some art. Uh, in uh, India, and I think it was like, I spent like $1,500 or something like that, and the, uh, it was at least $100, so $50 from my bank and $50 from an intervening bank, which is not a lot of money, but that's like, you know, 10 or, you know, 8% of what I was spending, right? Now, I also recently moved a bunch of crypto, okay? i'm not like hugely wealthy don't get the wrong idea. (laughs) but i used about but more than a thousand dollars and it cost me less than 50 cents you know to move it from one you know bank to another bank um so i was able to move large amounts of crypto um for and very very little money so you so if you think about that um the hundred dollars versus 50 cents So crypto is like 200 times cheaper if I've got the numbers right, you know? Um, And so there's a huge amount of potential gain just from that factor alone. And then you add on the fact that in these crypto worlds, it's a really a a new way of collaborating. Uh, With cryptography and blockchain, we have a new way of bringing people together who don't know necessarily one another, who do not necessarily trust one another, but through a smart contract, they can cooperate with one another. So these decentralized autonomous organizations, the DAOs, you know, I have said that the creation of the DAO may be as important as the creation of the limited liability uh, company in 1600. You know, with the creation of the East India Company, it may be as big a deal uh, as that, because you can bring people together who may not even know. Not only have they not worked together in the past, they may be anonymous to one another. So for the almost for the very first time, you have a group who trust one another without knowing who the other person is. And it's possible to do that with cryptography. Um, So I think the larger space is one of a new way of collaborating and cooperating that these technologies make possible, which is going to have very, very large uh, effects down the line. This is fascinating, Professor Taberik, because I feel like most economists, or at
0: least mainstream economists, are really not big fans of Bitcoin. They think it's a speculative asset. They think uh, it does not have all the properties of a currency. It probably does not even act as a good digital gold or inflation hedge, and it costs so much. Uh, social resources when it comes to you know using more electricity in in uh, Netherlands because of the current proof of work uh, model. So uh, whereas the Silicon Valley people are so optimistic about this in biology, I mean we previously talked about biology. He was one of the pioneers when when it comes to uh, advocating for for this, uh, and now he's like writing a newsletter that basically pays people in crypto to do things. So uh, again, do you again find yourself standing in between those two groups of people and trying to bridge? whatever conversation they're trying to have
1: yeah my my son by the way uh, recently won uh, hundred dollars in bitcoin from biology uh, for an essay that he wrote <laughs> yeah. yes he, he he's like uh, you could post a video of
0: you doing 50 push-ups or something and you may have a chance to win 100 bucks in bitcoin <laughs> <laughs>
1: he, yeah he didn't get it for push-ups he got it for writing an essay so sort of yeah. following in his father's footsteps oh that's uh, wonderful on charter <laughs> cities actually so kind of a pretty oh, cool great. yeah um absolutely. look if even like 10% of what Balaji says is true, or even 5%, it's absolutely huge, right? It's absolutely huge. And Balaji, I think is, look, you know, he was ahead on the pandemic by like two months. I think he may be ahead on crypto by like two years or five years. Um, but a lot of what he says, I think will will happen. And again, you know, if even, if, 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 if even only, you know, 5% or 10% happens, then that is a massive, massive change. You know, and he's talking about really how cryptography can undermine the nation state. Like why are we organized geographically, right? That in a way is a peculiar thing. Um, When we go online, we're not organized geographically at all, right? Like my friends online the people I interact with all over the world were organized by our interests, by, you know, our, uh, maybe we're economists in, in one way or, or, or people interested in, you know, cryptography or interested, you know, in in history or whatever it happens to be, you know, you know, there's a million interests, right? But you're not organized geographically, you know, rarely do I go out, let's, you know, find people in my neighborhood. There's a few things like that, but uh, Geographically, geography is only one of the ways in which we can organize ourselves. And yet it's the primary way in which we organize ourselves politically. But that does not have to be the case. Um, And in fact, in the past, people were not so organized geographically, even politically, they were organized by, according to the, the, either through the church, right? the the government yeah and there was like there were church courts right as well ecclesiastical courts as well as state courts and they had jurisdiction over different kinds of disputes you know and you had often you had some choice there were multiple competing courts and you had some choice uh there was like a merchant's court right and if you had a dispute with another merchant you took it to the Lex Maricourtia. Mer- Kortor- Mer- I, I, <laughs> I can't say it. Uh, you took it to the merchant courts, okay. And if you had a you know a dispute involving morals or something like that, you went to the church courts. And if you had a dispute involving something else, you went to the state courts. And these courts had overlapping jurisdictions and you know the competing uh, jurisdictions. Anyway, so we may be coming to something more like that, where we uh, organize ourselves um cryptographically and by interest and like like think about even work like what does the minimum wage mean okay when i hire people in indonesia on fiverr like it doesn't make sense anymore right the minimum wage is totally a geographic thing like how can it possibly make sense if and which is something i do by the way like for my powerpoints i outsource them to a team in uh, Indonesia who, you know, jazzes them up and, you know, puts in some animations and stuff it's like that. productivity
0: to gains, potentially. Yeah,
1: yeah, and, and so, you know, if you're hiring people from other countries, what on earth does a minimum wage mean? It doesn't mean anything, right? Um, and so we may have to change our entire perspective. It may become much more normal to think about uh, our political, connections as being online rather than as being uh offline geographic
0: it does seem that um this way of thinking of blockchain technology i mean we, we can first of all separate out the bitcoin prices swings i mean setting aside all that just looking at the technology and the political vision itself of what blockchain technology could do uh, do, do you think it's a uh, It's a very optimistic way of, a techno-optimistic way of thinking. Even, for example, something like Charter City, we had Mark Lutter on the show who was a a George Mason graduate and and, uh, um, the director of the Charter City Institute. And and he was telling us uh, Charter Cities are essentially those, you know, free ports, free trade ports, but uh, with their even own legal jurisdictions. And so you can even try different laws and voting systems in, in these cities. So it's fascinating, but we haven't really had too many actual applications of charter city maybe perhaps because of limitations uh, of political governance systems, especially emerging markets. Uh, a lot of the times the, the human nature just seems to hold back a lot of these innovation. And it also seems to be the case for a blockchain technology where uh, a lot of political theorists have written how, if, if you look into the, the dynamic between those who own the the, the DAO, the, the DAO, uh, and, and those who do, do not, and, and so on. It, it still seems that the same questions, the same political questions come back again and again. Uh, it, it's an old question. Uh, so, so that's the first part I would, I would like, like to ask you, Professor Tabrik, which is, uh, it seems that the, the techno-optimistic part of me, I have a hard time to, to, to overcome that when I look at the history, when I look at politics, when I look at the tendencies of, of human again and again.
1: Yeah, um, I'm not sure it's optimistic, uh, but it happens whether it's gonna be optimistic or pessimistic, right? Change is, is happening, especially on, in this ground. And this is a, a pure case. It's interesting how the themes we've we been talking about come up again and again and again. Uh, and this is another case of exponential degree growing process, right? Uh, if something happens in blockchain, in cryptography or something like that, then what will happen is nothing nothing, 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 and then suddenly everything will change, right? It is one of these exponential processes, the online processes, right? I mean, think about Facebook, Google, um, Twitter. These are some of the fastest adoption technologies which we have ever had, right? Facebook goes from being Harvard dorm, just a few people in our lifetimes, right? swapping you know information in the harvard dorm to now there's two billion people two billion billion not million billion two billion people on facebook and that has happened incredibly incredibly quickly and the ramifications i are still being worked out they still we have by no means uh adopted to all of these uh rapid uh changes and the same thing is true with uh crypto it's going to be nothing. It's going to be nothing. It's going to be nothing. And then suddenly you'll be working for a, a Dow, and you'll wonder how did this ha- how did this happen? Like, uh, I'm not going to work for a Dow. I'm going to work for George Mason. But Tiger, you may spend up a lot of your career working for a Dow. That's quite possible. My kids may uh, spend some of their time uh, working for a Dow, and it'll happen. We won't even. It, it'll happen so quickly. Um, it'll just seem normal. But the ramifications are going to be huge. This is the idea of exponential growth, of uh, yeah, which is the same thing as COVID, which is
0: like you use three exactly. cases to, to 3,000 cases in three days.
1: Exactly. And no one yeah. is prepared for it. Um, and uh, I don't think that the regulators will be too slow to stop it. Um, and this, is, this technology, <clears throat> you know, it's, again, it's very peculiar, right? Um, there are places in the world which do not have good street lighting where everybody has a cell phone a smartphone right so there are places in the world where a technology which was developed you know by thomas edison and you know 1898 or whatever it was about that time they still have not they're still not using that technology they don't have a sewage system you know which you know london had you know in 1850 right uh So some of these technologies, particularly those requiring coordinated action, requiring government, they take a very, very long time to be distributed around the world. And yet the cell phone, smartphone technology is everywhere, is everywhere. I mean, I remember a few years ago, uh, I was uh, in a car, in a highway in Rajasthan, India, and I was able to tweet from the moving car. It right? was, was unbelievable. You know, the first time I was able to like send an email from a plane 30,000 feet in the sky, um, So these technologies now are everywhere. And when if you have a smartphone, which again, let's remember that a smartphone is more powerful than a Cray supercomputer of a few years ago, you have a smartphone. You now have access to the entire world's knowledge, and you have access to blockchain, and you have access to cryptography, and you have access to a lot of um, job opportunities and work and a whole superstructure space. Right? You know, um, that that is huge, and this is this technology has just grown faster than anything we've ever seen before.
0: You mentioned India. My my friends in India were telling me how India essentially skipped credit cards they just leaped into fin- FinTech, financial technology. I mean, everybody yeah. pays their phone, whatever. So, so yeah, uh, so there is this idea of, of techno, technology innovations could, could, could jump a lot of hurdles that the, they, they do not progress in the stage that we think America has experienced or, or so on, uh, absolutely. Uh, so, so I guess one last pushback I may, I may have on, on this idea is that a lot of people, cr- the current criticism is that if you actually look into the, the space of innovation or the actual applications of blockchain technology is mostly for, for payments, you know, Uniswap or a lot of those decentralized and decentralized exchanges. So it's it's it seems that's why a lot of people were saying, what are you saying? How blockchain structure could could you know give us new uh, political sovereignties, whatever, when when everything is just basically exchanges. Yeah, uh, yeah. And you would essentially be responding by saying the, the progress could happen exponentially. There are people working on these projects, and it it almost seems to be an inevitable trend that that we head towards digital currency, blockchain. When these things have emerged, uh, yeah, it's, people it's have, have no clue.
1: Right, this is the first two or three deaths, right, as we were talking about uh, earlier, and the 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 uh, the tidal wave is coming. So I think I mean you're right. Like all of this DeFi, right, decentralized finance, where now hundreds of billions of dollars are being exchanged. Now it is true, right, that this is mostly one crypto for another, right? So very little impact yet on the real world, but really this is a sandbox. Uh, you are exchanging hundreds of billions of dollars on decentralized finance, and the systems are being developed to do that securely. So the systems on decentralized finance, although we hear, you know, about the failures because you know the the guy, you know abscons with his computer and it turns out he has all of the keys and all that kind of stuff, you know, uh, really what's going on is that the decentralized finance is developing uh, much more cryptographically secure technologies than, uh, than the than the uh, New York stock exchange, right? Um, the New York stock exchange, the technologies there are nowhere near as secure, that's okay because they're so much slower and there's so much more room for human you know involvement and let's fix this and something like that. Um, but the New York Stock Exchange, every single stock exchange in the world is now vulnerable to crypto. Okay. Uh, all you need to do is to tokenize you know a stock, and the advantages of doing it on crypto are absolutely immense, like it was very peculiar to my kids. Uh, they wanted to when they, you know, GameStop. They wanted to, you know, uh, have some fun, you know, uh, taking a short on GameStop. <laughs> and very peculiar for them to realize that the markets are closed. What? They're only yeah. open, you know, a few hours, eight hours a day. It's they're a not centralized
0: open. Centralized exchange. Yeah. yeah, they're not uh, open
1: Saturdays and Sundays. Meanwhile, I can. Yeah exchange my crypto 24 hours a day seven days a week 365 days a year you know what's going on here right this likes looks so primitive you know uh it's like i remember again my kids my kids grew up with TiVo, which is now sort of dated right but the, the point was that they grew up where they went to a television and they chose what they wanted to watch and then they went to grandma's house and they were very confused because <laughs> What do you mean, I have to wait a certain time to watch a television show? Why isn't it ready for me? Why isn't it there right now? And the same thing is true with with finance, like why can't you trade 24 hours a day, I can watch a movie 24 hours a day, you know, I can go to Netflix and choose what I want to watch when I want to watch it, pause it, you know, whatever. Uh, Why don't I have, you know, uh, uh, why don't the financial markets work like that in crypto they do um so not only is it going to be cheaper it's going to be faster it's also going to be more secure i mean we're going to people are going to lose a lot of money before it gets all the way right um but uh if you're careful crypto is right now it's more secure than uh the standard financial system and so that means that everything is being developed okay and it's being readied and then suddenly we're going to see stocks Put onto crypto, tokenized, and it's going to explode. So
0: this is none of this is financial advice, investment advice, obviously. But what would be some of the projects that you find exciting, either either tokens or or coins themselves? Uh, some of the projects there were, were companies, uh, startups.
1: So I'm an advisor to Elrond, uh, which is a Ethereum uh, competitor. Um, so again, yeah, I don't. I don't don't advise (laughs) buying it or anything like that. Um, But they're a very hardworking team. And I'm really impressed with them uh, as a team. So I think uh, that's why I like that. Um, uh, Another interesting project I've been involved with is a library, LBRY. Library is a YouTube competitor. And the, the thing, the projects I've been involved with, I've been very pleased in that they're not just white papers, they're actual existing projects. They work. So right now, uh, you can go to Library L B R Y, and um, you know download videos, watch videos. Uh, it is a, a working, living competitor to YouTube, and uh, it cannot be censored. Okay, uh, because it's on the blockchain. Uh, if you upload videos to it, um, you cannot be uh, censored. It's censorship resistant, um, and that you know, a lot of people now. Um, are beginning to think that how valuable this is because as a creator right if you're creating youtube content and you can put up years of youtube videos right and then suddenly youtube says oh you're politically incorrect you're gone and your entire work of many years your connection with your fans everything is is cut is just is just cut so Uh, that's very dangerous for a creator not to have the keys uh, to their kingdom, to their own kingdom, right? YouTube owns the keys to your kingdom. And, you know, uh, so uh, unfortunately, this creates a a bad dynamic in that, excuse me, in that some of the early adopters of crypto uh, including something like, you know, library censorship resistance and so forth, they're the flakes, they're, they are the, you know, the weird people there who, you know, are most afraid of being deplatformed, right? Um, so that, therefore some of these platforms can get a bad reputation, um, but that I think is missing the underlying picture, uh, which is that you want the keys to your own kingdom and therefore you should be, you know, uploading your uh, project to a library at least as a backup you should at least have it there as a uh, uh, as a backup but also these technologies they can be faster uh, they can work better uh, a decentralized technologies not always but often they can actually work better than their centralized components so i think that is also going to be another uh selling point
0: so we were interviewing matt weinberg who is a princeton uh computer science professor who does a lot of mechanism design work uh, r- around cryptocurrency. And he was telling us that uh, the Turing Prize winner, uh, um, S- S- Silvio Mercati, who yeah. at, at, from MIT, Turing Prize, huge, I mean, this is a huge deal that he won the Turing Prize, It's the most prestigious prize in, in, you know, math and science these days, uh, basically is, is a starting program. Algorand. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah, Algorand, yeah. Uh, Correct. So, uh, Correct. yeah. So, Professor Tabrik, will you be the be the next? I mean, the, basically the, the giant in the economics that is that is uh, departing from <laughs> academia. Well, to, you know,
1: to... yeah, I mean, uh, Hal Varian, right, you know, wrote a famous textbook and then became Google's yeah. chief economist and got very, very rich. So. Uh, <laughs> so I'm hoping to be uh, Elrond's uh, chief economist or, you know, there's some other projects. Which I can't actually tell you about which are very exciting but wow wow I can't tell you about them yet um <laughs> but, you know keep keep tuned there's some very exciting projects coming down the line uh, which I'm a, a, a part of and no you're absolutely right like I've also worked with um, Tim Rothgarden who's another winner of yes. um He's uh Columbia you know,
0: I think yeah exa- sure. exactly
1: uh, and uh, I've, I've, I'm not sure if it's the Turing, maybe it's, the, I think he was the Turing prize winner um, for algorithmic uh, game theory. Um, if it wasn't, the, I might've gotten confused. It might've been- It a, might it, be some
0: other prestige. Yeah, it a
1: very prestigious prize in, in computer science. Uh, uh, David Shore, the uh, uh, you know, um, quantum uh, 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 computation guy, also got one of these prizes. Uh, anyway, so I, I think I take your point very seriously in that top computer scientists, um, as you've mentioned, they are all interested in these technologies. Uh, they don't think it's a waste of time. So that does tell you something. Uh,
0: the, the, Professor Taber, we are nearing the end of our, our interview. I don't want to take too much more of your time, but I suppose uh, in conversation with Tyler, which is a very famous podcast that Professor Cowan hosts, he always has these quick fire questions that, that don't seem to be, uh, entirely related per se. So maybe we can, we can do some of those uh, quick questions at, at, the, at the end. Uh, maybe the first one I would say is uh, you, you emailed me about this idea, dominant assurance contract. So maybe we can start there, Well, what are those?
1: So this is an idea mechanism, which I created a number of years ago, recently tested successfully in the lab. It's like Kickstarter, um, on Kickstarter, you give money until uh, a threshold uh, is reached and your money isn't taken from you until you reach the threshold, or to put it slightly differently, you get all your money back, if not enough is collected to reach the threshold to produce the public good. We add to that refund bonuses, which is that if you don't reach the threshold, then you get a a bonus, you get paid. And the amazing thing about this is a very, very simple idea, and yet it solves in many ways the public good problem. It solves a big chunk of the public good problem, because now, If I think that you're not going to contribute, then I want to contribute in order to get the refund bonus and same thing for you. And so that this means that we always want to contribute and the only equilibria in the refund bonus game is ones in which the public good is uh, actually uh, produced. So it's quite a simple mechanism, but has some quite remarkable properties.
0: What about the idea of uh, bounty hunters? that you emailed me about. Bounty
1: hunters, I love the bounty hunters. Um, So I wrote a paper on them, a statistical paper, comparing them to the police. They're more effective than the uh, police in getting their man. And um, I actually got to know some of these bounty hunters and I actually went bounty hunting once in Baltimore. So that was my attempt to be like Steve Levitt. Steve Levitt takes his uh, students uh, out with the police and I went bounty hunting. uh, But that's a story for another day.
0: (laughs) So uh, unemployment rate in the coming months, uh, up or down? Down, down, down. Uh, inf- inflation in the co- in the coming months, up or down?
1: Up. Stimulus was too big, but it's okay. But it's going up.
0: Do you worry about the persistent inflation problem, or do you think the Federal Reserve has it contained?
1: I've learned that the world is more challenging and surprising than than I could expect. Um, so I don't. I don't know. I don't know. Um, I anything anything could happen. I, I I think I'm not like worried about it. Okay, but um, you know my priors are are pretty diffuse on a lot of different questions now. Uh,
0: did you get an invite to be at the a Miami Bitcoin conference this past June? And and if not, would you be open to attending one day?
1: <laughs> yeah, I did get an invite. Um, <laughs> I didn't. I didn't go. Uh, maybe I should have. I guess I should have. But uh, it it conflicted with some other things
0: what do you think of the bitcoin community or the bitcoin maximalists? a lot of people say it's almost like a cult
1: <laughs> yeah yeah i mean yeah uh i'm not a bitcoin maximalist um uh so i guess I'm, I'm not quite a member of the cult but i like this i i overall i think look um it's like uh, electricity um, it's like these it's a general purpose technology These blockchains and cryptography is a general purpose technology. Um, I'm very enthusiastic about the field as a whole, but I have no idea whatsoever, you know, which of the many, many attempts are going to uh, succeed. So I've placed a few bets just in terms of consulting, um, you know, uh, but uh, I much, but it's very, very difficult to predict uh, which firm within this large space uh, is gonna succeed. Uh, what are your thoughts on charter cities i'd like to live one one <laughs> uh, i think we, we do too little experimentation um so yeah I, I like to see a lot more experimentation with uh governance so um charter cities governance in the um in, in uh, hyperspace and you know uh in, in the you know computer space uh i think is very interesting like there's a lot more room for experimentation we're spending so much of our time uh online um, moving from world to world online. It's online has become as satisfies most of the conditions of the TIBU model for the economists uh, in the crowd. So thinking about the t- the applying the TIBU applying the TIBU model to the online worlds, I think is very useful.
0: Uh, if the United States government had given all the vaccines to Amazon, do you think the vaccines would have been distributed much quickly with the uh, prime two-day shipping or whatever <laughs> that, that we would get vaccinated faster.
1: Uh, I'm not sure it's a little bit more complicated than that. <laughs> um, you know I have argued in favor of investing more in um, nasal vaccines and in oral pill uh, uh, vaccines um, because people are afraid of needles and the needles mean you need the kind of a medical system distribution. while if we had a pill or you had a, a you know you squeeze it up your nose, uh, that would uh, help with distribution a lot. So I do think there's still room there to improve the technology to help us with distribution.
0: If you had full dictatorial power over the country and had to appoint a council of people of whom you would pass that power to, whether it's one, two, five, ten, twenty 10, 20 people, who would those people be?
1: I'm not sure I want dictatorial power, but <laughs> I'll, I'll say this. You know, in the pandemic, um, you know, you know, Trump put together, you know, a pandemic response team, you know, with like Ivanka is on the team. It's totally ridiculous. He never did anything, right, (laughs) Um, uh, uh, absurd. Uh, But if I had put together my pandemic response team, um, Emily Oster, uh, um, Zeynep uh, Tufeki, I'm probably saying her name wrong, um, Paul Romer, Michael Mina, uh, maybe myself, There was a opportunity there. Richard Hatchett. There's not. There was. There were people who understood the crisis. They, generally speaking, were not at the top of the uh, power, uh, you know, hierarchy. But there were people out there who understood the crisis and who were addressing it with data and uh, technology and who were really thinking about this hard. So we could have done much better than we did. Um, And had we had a team such as I just suggested, I, I. you know, humbly, modestly, whatever, you know, arrogantly, you know, I think we could have done better.
0: If you had can press a button right now and end social media, including, I don't know, TikTok or, or Facebook or whatever, would you do that?
1: No, I just don't know. I mean, I like I, I, <laughs> I wouldn't, I, I would have no clue whether that would be on net beneficial or um, uh, negative. So I let people make their own uh, choices. I do think this, look, So here's a here's a negative. This is my own kind of pet theory. Uh, um, You know, the rise of Hitler and things like that. Right. I think that was not coincidentally, also the rise of new technologies like the movie theater, like movies, film. Um, Like now to us, when you look at Hitler, he seems like kind of a joke. Right. I mean, he's got this funny mustache, this almost Charlie Chaplin like and he's like screaming and yelling. He just kind of. I don't get it like it's hard to understand like how did this guy enthuse millions of people, but when you combine that with you were seeing him literally as a giant. Okay on a movie screen. So for the very first time you're seeing these people. They're like gods right this technology your brain is not used to it. Okay, your brain is not used to it. And so you, you see them in these contexts and, and you know all these new, you know, Lily Riefenstahl and all these new techniques and your brain is just not able to uh, comprehend it uh, because it's too early. I think social media is exactly the same thing. Um, So I do think there's lots of dangers to social media, uh, particularly like I think like uh, the one good thing about the communist government in China is that they have been authoritarian, but they haven't been populist. So I worry about a populist authoritarian in China who takes advantage of social media the new, the next generation, the younger generation of leadership who uh, take advantage of social media and take advantage of sort of a naive population, naive in the sense of not having experience with social media. You know, like my kids are much more experienced with social media than, you know, even I am, right? So, you know, they were born in it and all that. And I think their brains are better attuned to be more skeptical, right? and to kind of be able to navigate these worlds. Um, So I think it does take time. And unfortunately, the technology is happening more quickly than our brains are adapting. But I hope we will get through uh, this period uh, and make it through on the other end okay.
0: What would be your underrated and overrated? Uh, Professor Cowan always asks that question to his guests. (laughs) Uh,
1: Like a general of anything? Yeah. (laughs) Uh, I'll, I'll say tyler cowen is still underrated which is amazing because he's rated very highly but uh when you watch these conversations with tyler and he asks these questions of the economists you know and very you know detailed questions and you know insightful questions uh and that's one thing okay he's an economist you understand that and then he asks the poets and he asked them all of these incredible questions i don't even understand all the questions right and then he asks, you know, the epidemiologists and the psychologists and all of these guys, the historians. And Tyler has an answer to every single question that he asks. And, you know, so uh, he, he is still underrated. He is still underrated. The depths of his knowledge, which is still growing all of the time. Like he did a video, a, a, a podcast, and uh, a lot of the podcast was discussion of, um, uh, uh jamaican uh, uh reggae and like it turns out he's like an expert on reggae music <laughs> <You know? laughs> and i've known him for you know 30 years and i didn't know that he knew as much about reggae music as he actually does right so i'm continually i have not been able to plumb those uh depths and he's learning more every day so he, i'm very very uh fortunate uh, to have tyler as a colleague and as a friend he's a very remarkable person
0: Anything that you think is overrated? I mean, that's honestly too broad of a question, I guess, for, for to, to be answered even.
1: Overrated. I mean, most things are overrated. <laughs>
0: <laughs> okay, that sounds great. I guess the last question the name of our show is Policy Punchline. So I want to ask you at the end what would the punchline be here? Either about COVID or crypto or uh, techno optimism or whatever, however you you may call this.
1: Um, let's see, I, I, I guess the punchline uh, is it's great to be an economist. So, um, you know, I, 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 I'm, I'm happy about the field in, in general, and uh, it gives you a really great tools uh, for seeing the world. You know, we say the punchline, the, the tagline for uh, my textbook with Tyler, Bottom Principles of Economics is uh, see the invisible hand, understand your world. And uh, I've been I think that's a great thing for students to have. And uh, you're learning a great set of techniques, data and analytical techniques, which could apply to a lot of areas. So I'm very encouraging of all the students. I think you have great careers ahead of you. It's, a, it's an exciting time. And uh, I look forward to reading your papers, Tiger.
0: Thank you so much, Professor Tabarik. It's such a great honor to meet you and finally have you on the show. I mean, I, I think uh, mostly all my friends in Silicon Valley would be enthused to, to, to watch all this, but, but uh, thank, thank you so much again for joining me today. Great, thank you, Tiger. Well, this concludes this episode of Policy Punchline that was with Alex Tabarik. He's a professor of economics at George Mason University, also just a wonderful public intellectual who has played a very pivotal role at the beginning of the pandemic, helping with the policy responses. And also uh, going forward, uh, I, we really encourage you to follow his Twitter at A Taberik, uh, on, on on Twitter, but also his various other works and writings on marginal revolution, which is uh, the famous economics blog. That he and Tyler Cowan has started. Uh, it would also be great for you to listen to Tyler Cowan's podcast, "Conversation with Tyler." Uh, as Professor Tabrik has mentioned, it's a, a has a wide variety of conversations from economics to poetry to literature to other uh, fields uh, as well. So thank you so much for listening today. Uh, please follow us on the YouTube, iTunes, Spotify. Uh, thank you so much for listening. We'll see you next time. <music>